get started, as far as I know. Recording, baby. This is recording. <clears throat> All right, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of the Legitimus Podcast. Sorry about the late start. A little bit of a wait. Uh, we're a couple days late here. Uh, obviously, not to the fault of myself. Chris has been moving all his stuff, so he's been all tied up. He hasn't been able to get on the phone or anything like that. And <laughs> boy's been traveling all around the country, giving love tugs to people and stuff like that as he's uh, scoping the axe landscape. Rub a tug, uh, man. But uh, no, actually, the fault was all mine. I was on vacation and wasn't able to make it, so I'm the one that held up the whole entire process. I'm lucky I actually didn't get booted off of the group here, first time in. But so you were drunk all week, right? Luckily, the only thing that saved me is that I control all the electronic slash media stuff. That's the only thing that probably saved me, so I'm still in the group. But otherwise, howdy, boys. What did I miss? Tell me. What, what's going on? What's happening? What's a new word on the street? So I got two things. Um, one, the Appalachian Axe Meet that I went to last weekend was awesome, so I want to chit-chat about that for a little bit. And then uh, this 127 yard sale stuff, I want to... I want to get into that also. Do it. Well, we'll see what uh, what's Chris up to, aside from moving. Anything cool that you want to kind of talk about later on, whatever? No. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, <so. laughs> All right, let's get into uh, the Appalachian Axe Meet. First off, I want to thank um, Axe Junkies, um, Rooster and Daryl Gruevit and Taylor uh, and Portia for putting all that stuff on. It was freaking awesome. So I know you two schleps didn't go. Um, We're not cool. No, you're not. I wasn't uh, invited. It was an open invite. <laughs> um. So there were about 40 guys down there, and it was a whole lot of fun. Um, Friday night, I mean, you know how it is. We're all just a bunch of freaking schoolgirls when we get together because we don't really meet up very often. So it was just partying, having a good time, lots of beer, lots of fun, staying up late. Yeah, I, I like what you're doing over there, Killer. Um, <laughs> uh, but then Saturday um, – Rooster gave a demo. There was a spoon carving demo, and I gave a little demo on how to hang a head using a draw knife. Um, dinner Saturday night was off the charts amazing. Um, Daryl made a whole bunch of crawdads up. Uh, Brandon got a whole bunch of corn on the cob, and then Portia did some pork, pulled pork stuff, and then... Uh, Joe Flowers did this fucking banging hot chili. It was so freaking good. Um, but it was just a Do what? Who's Portia? She's the one that owns the campground and she's buddies with Daryl and I don't know. I don't know what that relationship's like, but they're all friends. They know each other. I don't, whatever, but they're freaking awesome. She's not an axe chick. No, 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 no. Um, but she did win a free axe. We had a little uh, um, giveaway. A couple pieces were given away, and she actually won. So that was really cool. So she gets an axe. Um, so it was really, really fun, and you guys missed out. So suck it. 
I know I definitely uh, feel left out. Not left out. I mean, to Kellinger's point, it was open invite, and I know a bunch of guys that took, you know told me and asked me about it. And man, I I uh, I know I definitely got to get to that stuff next year. But it definitely it sounds like a great time. A bunch of good guys, and like you were saying, there was all kind of different stuff going on. I mean, you had spoon carving and stuff like that. So how uh, how many days was that whole thing? Was that two days, three days? It was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, most guys were rolling out pretty early Saturday because it's kind of it's close to Asheville, but I mean, shit, it took me six hours to get there. I think Brent from Nashville took him several hours. There were some guys from South Carolina, um, another guy from Kentucky, named Charles. Um, I met a, I met a bunch of guys. It was really fun, um, but kind of typical of these meets. Um, as you guys are both aware of, I mean, these guys bring tons and tons of heads, and uh, we're all trying, we're all trying to chase pennies here, man. And retail uh, show. Do what? Retail show. It is a retail show, and and I went down there with a couple hundred bucks, and I walked home. I walked away, excuse me, with. I, I didn't spend any money at all. Um, just everything's too expensive. And I get where they're trying to come from, but, you know, it's supposed to be an axe meet for axe guys. And good God, we all know what we're paying for these things. It's not like we're going into a freaking antique mall or something and trying to pay up full retail on stuff. I mean, if you get a good deal on something, pass the deal on to someone else who can appreciate it. Don't try to fucking make money off of, the guys that are into this, it's just frustrating because there's yeah. so good. There's so many good pieces to choose from, but they're all ridiculously expensive. So, hey, yeah, I remember some some of these guys. That's the only thing. The only reason they do this is the money. That's they're true. Just, they're just trying to get rich. Well, that's why I was saying we're all chasing pennies because I don't think anyone's getting rich off of this. Um, no. So. It's cool to see all the people um, that love axes. They all get together. They all bring their, you know, their prize pieces. And I understand that there's value on a lot of these pieces. I get it. But trying to get like top retail dollar off of a Kelly Flint edge. I mean, come on. I'm just not going to pay up for that shit. Those are my thoughts. All right. Well, moving on from the retail landscape. <laughs> um, no, that does sound like a pretty cool event. I have to make sure that I get to that next year just to be able to check everything out and see all the different uh, stuff going on. And then plus meet. There's a bunch of guys that go to that meet that I have not actually physically met yet. So I know I'm I'm very jealous and very uh, upset that I couldn't make it. But that's uh, my fault. I got to plan better for next year. Well, it's just one of those things, you know, we're, we're all connected online either through Facebook groups or Instagram or, in Killinger's case, like behind truck stops or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, meeting these guys face-to-face, like you're saying, Miller, it's just really cool because it, it puts a face to a name. It actually humanizes the person that we've been chatting with for, I don't know, forever how long, you know? And it's just cool to to hang out with like-minded guys. That's all I'm saying. And, Killer, uh, you and I, we've talked about this. Like, every meet that you and I have gone to 
uh, over the last year or two years or whatever it's been, it's like you take fewer and fewer pieces because yeah. <laughs> it's just not worth it. No. Like, so whenever you first went to an axe meet, your, your very first axe meet, how many pieces do you think you took with you? Well, I took the entire Norlin collection. Which consists of how many pieces? Um, Roughly. Probably 20. Okay. 20 of those. And then I took every every cool axe I own, you know. So that's two. <laughs> and then I took, uh, I took buckets of, of axes to sell. And you know what? It, that, that, uh, experience was, I, I took stuff to sell. And when I said I took it to sell, I, I put ridiculous prices on it, like $5. Yeah. And, and I took stuff home. People didn't buy it. So after that, I was, I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to drag this stuff all over place people aren't going to buy it anyway and you know it's just not worth it <clears throat> so this last axe meet i went to i took um five ten maybe 15 pieces because i had the two bags in my box right so miller you're a good example the the meat that you went to at killinger's house back in february you took a blazillion pieces right how many do you think you took Oh man, that's a good idea. I know I had, uh, I think I had 17 handled pieces and then probably somewhere around 30 heads is what I want to say, give or take five there. Um, and I didn't sell any. I wasn't really looking to sell any. I know I gave a couple away. I traded a couple with uh, a couple of the guys there, but I wasn't really looking to, to sell or anything like that. Uh, so a little bit of a different beast. For myself, uh, I think, you know, you bring up a really good point because, you know, you're going to these meets, which are awesome. You know, again, more just to meet the guys and see what's going on and shoot the shit, swap some tails and have fun. I think that particular avenue or that particular place, that's going to be a tough sell because obviously to your point that you said earlier, everybody knows exactly what that flint hedge, quote unquote, is worth or sure. what should be paid for it. So. I don't know if, you know, those kind of meets, if, uh, if guys are really ever going to be able to get into true retail with that. I'm sure there's some behind the scenes stuff, guys swapping heads and axes and handles and whatever else. Um, but I think maybe the way that I always looked at that is that those are more like meet and greets, you know, show what you got. And then maybe if there is a guy or a gal there or whoever, and you can work something out, work a deal out, whether it's a purchase or whether it's a swap, you know, then, uh, go ahead and make that happen. But like I said, I've only been to technically one official one. That was a killers or I guess two killers and leaps. Um, and I was there more for, you know, show and tell meet and greet and just uh, shoot the shit. So we'll see how these go. I mean, they're, they're awesome. I'm sure. Yeah, but, so, but the point that I was making was you took X number to Killinger's place. And then you took much, you took a lot less to Leaf's place. I did take less to leaves, not a lot. I still took 20, 25 pieces to leaves. Um, but, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Um, the lesson definitely was learned. And I think Keller and I talked about that. I was like, there's no way I can haul all these again. That's why we talked. And, and I was like, listen, I need something a little bit better. And we, we talked about those booties and, and Keller started making up those booties in order to protect uh, a lot of the pieces that I had because I can't have those 
you know, banging around in the truck and stuff like that. And you guys know that. Yeah. So, so that was interesting. Um, I mean, wherever the next meetup and stuff like that, I'm still probably going to try and take as many as I possibly can because I think it's important to be able to show everybody, Hey, these are, these are some of these original pieces. This is what these look like whenever they were sitting in a hardware store. This is what these look like whenever they originally got shipped to you in one of those wooden boxes. You right. want to be able to show that. Now, whether somebody walks out of there by purchasing one of those from me, we'll see how that goes. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I think it will be a little bit tailored, tailored a little bit different, uh, for what I would do. But all I know is I got to quit screwing around. I got to get there. That's what I got to do. Well, I think you, you know, I think you're in a little bit different position um, because you are trying to get these people, these, these pieces out in front of people to share the history and the, the significance of them. So you're not necessarily going to sell stuff. And, and that's awesome that you want to share your collection because having seen it firsthand, the, the, the pieces that you've taken to these meets, I mean, it's just a small slice of everything that you have. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that Killinger? hundred percent. I mean, whenever we walked into his house, what, <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, let me just ask you, what was your uh, uh, initial reaction whenever we walked into Mike Miller's house? We're in the presence of a God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just my, you can't even wrap your head around it. You're like, uh, I'm not even worthy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, so here's what's interesting, I think, about a lot of guys is, um, and I fall into this category too. Like if, if I have one or two completely original new old, new old stock paper label or whatever, nice etch, like that is, that's the, the, the pinnacle of my collection. And you walk into Mike Miller's house. Well, it's not just one or two pieces. It's an entire fucking wall. And every little nook and cranny, like on the mantle, he's like, oh, check this out. Here's a salesman sample. It's got bevels on one side. It's smooth on the other. And it's marked this on one side. And it's got a sticker on the other. Like that one piece alone would be someone's prized possession in their collection. Yeah. And Mike Miller has hundreds of them. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It is. It is. How many, how many books and catalogs? We were trying to, trying to quantify that last time, Miller. How many books and catalogs of material do you think you have? Mike Miller, are you there? I thought he was thinking. <laughs> He's frozen. Somewhere just up on the thing, like 25 of them up on the wall, and then there's, uh, I have three or four other boxes like paper you know eight and a half by 11 boxes that are all full of uh miscellaneous catalogs paperwork i have uh three or four boxes that are full of tom lamont's original research uh photocopies that i was able to get that um are just reading material i mean you just get lost in there you just start reading stuff and there's the, the guy spent countless amount of time on the research and it was old school research where this guy was actually going to the museums and getting his paperwork and printing it and copying it and all these different patents that he pulled from the government. So um, I'm going to say somewhere in the neighborhood of probably 50 to 60 catalogs and then however many boxes of miscellaneous paperwork. 
somewhere in that area. So let, let's just put a number to it. <clears throat> if you were to sit down and read all of the stuff that you have, start to finish, how long would it take you to read everything? Oh man, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm just trying. I'm just trying to get um, get a sense of how big this collection is because you're like, oh yeah, one or two boxes or miscellaneous boxes, but <laughs> it, it, to be to see it, it, I mean, it's it's crazy. So I'm trying to quantify the number so the guys listening can kind of kind of get an idea. Probably two weeks to sit down and read through it all. The Tom Tom Lamont stuff is with all the photocopies is there's a lot of stuff there. There's individual sheets. There's individual patent um, uh, sheets that he had copied. So there's just a lot of info there. So it would take a while, uh, week to two weeks, somewhere in that area. So Chris Miller, you know who Tom Lamont is, right? Yeah. Only because of Miller. Only because of Miller. I never paid attention until Miller started talking about him. So, for the guys out there who don't know who Tom Lamond is, just briefly, he's he's the guy that is um, responsible for yesteryear tools, and he created all of these ancillary booklets. Um, and Mike Miller can can talk more about him directly if you want to. I don't care. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the guy is uh, the research master. The amount of time and effort that he must have put in, especially during that time frame, because his research would have been different. Um, a lot, you know, he's the one that basically cr- created the Internet Bible for all of us now to be able to go online and get the quick answer, to get the quick date, to get the quick line of, you know, who made what and, and all that. He put all that together old school style based off of his uh, paperwork that I have. One of the really cool things in his paperwork is that there's these original letter. Some of them are original letters. Some of them are photocopies of where he would actually send a letter to a museum and say, this is what I'm looking for, A, B, and C. The museum then would photocopy whatever they have and then send it back to him and say, hey, I hope this is what you're looking for. And then he used that as part of his research. So just, uh, so just imagine that, trying to do your research now in today's age. You're writing letters, old school style. you got to send it. you got to wait. You're still waiting. Oh, my God, I'm still waiting. And then all of a sudden this letter comes back with you know photograph stuff. And sometimes they, they would actually send original um, pieces, things like that. That's how he did it to, for the majority of it. The other really cool, cool thing with him is that those drawings that are in – his catalogs or the, the little um, booklets that he wrote, plus the drawings that are on his website. He did the majority of those by himself. He hand hand drew those with a computer program. So brief. Imagine the time and the effort that he that he took to do that. And I'll tell you the the one interaction that I had with him that didn't really go over so well is whenever I uh, I got that that new old stock Lincoln axe. And I was looking at it and I'm looking at what he had online because obviously he was uh, the go-to resource. And so I remember one of my very first interactions with him is that I emailed him and I'm like, Hey, you know what I have on this Lincoln axe looks pretty similar to what you have. It doesn't exactly match up. And he basically led into me about, Hey, do you know what it takes to be able to draw this stuff with this computer program and put this out there and the time and the effort 
And I was like, okay, thank you, sir. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then uh, a couple of the conversations that I had with him, uh, you know, just the time, you could definitely tell the time and the effort that he had to put in. And I can't even imagine it now because of everything that he already has sitting on a plate out there on the website is basically there for everyone to be able to get, which is great. But I think some people need to be able to really realize and, and appreciate the amount of time and, and effort and I'm sure money that he put into that. It's, it's mind blowing. It is absolutely, it, I can't even fathom it. Yeah, no, no kidding. I mean, it, so do you know the backstory of why he got into it? Why he got started? And I mean, did it just kind of snowball from, well, I've just started this little collection because I wanted a little, um, a little knowledge and piece of history for myself. And then it just kind of spun out of control and he was just going down rat hole after rat hole. I, I don't know that. I would assume it has something to do with that or uh, like obviously the history part of the paper label part. I think um, he did have some pretty magnificent pieces that I was able to get my hands on um, you know, later on after he passed. But as far as the actual ins and outs of what was going on there to get everything going, I, I, I don't know that we didn't talk about that. Interesting. How many paper labels do you have, Killinger? Zero. Don't you have well, New Orleans? This is a, I guess the, the the plums I got off of Miller would count. Yeah. Because they're, they're newer, but yeah, I guess they're still paper labels. Yeah. What about those New Orleans? You got a couple New Orleans, right? Yeah, I guess a couple of the New Orleans have the labels on them still. I got, I got more than I thought I did. So you start off with zero, and now you're up to like six or seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, got, I, got yeah I, got, I got none. <laughs> so what about you, Killinger? What's going on? Talk about your shop. Not just so it's that, or anything. I got so many things going on at once, I can't concentrate on one area. So just like nothing's getting done. <laughs> it's just complete chaos. Um, so I gotta get the, uh, I gotta get some things moved today, and then I'm gonna go back to working on the shop and try and get the electric moved all around, and um, so I can start moving my stuff into the shop. So is that like goal number one? Set the shop, sh- set the shop up, and then move all the personal household stuff. Well, originally it was, but it's not working out though. Like no. today, today we're gonna move the beds and refrigerator so that we can sleep at the new house. Yeah. And then uh, <clears throat> I, I I need to get the shop set up because I need to be able to if an if a wholesale order comes in, I need to be able to fill it. Yeah. I don't want to be out of out of business for too long. Yeah. So, it is coming. It'll it'll happen. Well, like you and I were talking uh, the other day, I'm kind of envious of you because you have this beautiful blank slate and you can you can dial it in the way that you want. And I know that you're kind of under the gun on, in terms of time, though, but because uh, you want to, like you were saying, you want to get up and running as quickly as you can. But not very many people have the luxury of just walking into a brand new shop. It's pretty awesome. <clears throat> I'm 
I'm very fortunate that this property has that because I just we would have been heartbroken if there was no garage or shop on this property. Well, that's Plus, almost a, that's almost a deal breaker for guys like you and I today, right? Yeah, I mean, well, the, one of the biggest things when we were looking for a house was what what kind of space does it have for shop space, you know? And I, I'm kind of unique as in, you know, I've got the leather and axe and stuff go, thing going on on one end, and then on the other, I'm a mechanic by trade. I mean, so, you know, I don't pay people to fix my cars. Right. <laughs> I fix them myself. So, then, you know, now I... I you add that in, you're like, well, I need to have a place that I can work on my cars. You know, I've got this big, huge toolbox that I have to store and all this, all the stuff that goes with it. And, um, this place just happened to work out because the, the garage under that's with, attached to the house is big enough to to do the mechanic stuff and and a little bit of storage. And then I got this separate building, which will be my shop. That's yeah, you know, it's a blank canvas, and like you said, I make it however I want. Yeah, which is nice because I've never had, I've never had that opportunity. I've always just, just had, you know, settled for whatever I had. You know, the shop I'm in now, I I could never hang anything on the walls because it's cinder blocks. <laughs> right, and it's like you don't realize how convenient it is to that wall space until you don't have it. Dude, that's what I love about my shop. Anywhere, I can put anything anywhere that I want. All I got to do is just screw something into it because it's all pallet wood. I mean, it like, does not matter. So whenever whenever you see my shop, it looks like almost, uh, oh, what do they call it? Like a shadow board. Like I've got little screws and everything for ball peen hammers, actual hammers, uh, my draw knife. Like everything, it's like a puzzle. You can just put Anything they want, wherever you want. It's freaking awesome. So, uh, Miller, how long have you been working on your garage? Because it, your, <laughs> your fucking garage is like a goddamn museum itself. Yeah. Um, not very long, a little bit over a year. Uh, and oh, the, no big this, deal. <laughs> this, the summer project is a, the one whole side is, is basically barren. So I'm trying to figure out what exactly to do with that. If I'm, going to either barn with that or pallet with that or maybe OSB that so then I can get into what you were talking about Roy so then whenever it comes to hanging the axes it's just you put them wherever you want a couple screws up on the wall they go if you need to rearrange it who cares uh, things like that but then also trying to figure out what's going to go over on that wall as far as uh, maybe some other equipment and things like that so that's on the to-do list here over the next couple months I got to get the get 220 run out there finally decided to just cut to the chase and do that so then i can any other toys that i need to be able to run i can do that as well and uh and go from there so hopefully have that all set up by by fall and then get rolling on some serious things and quit pissing around (laughs) so you're going to move all your plum your your plum display stuff into your media room is that correct yeah, the plum stuff has to come inside uh, for two reasons. Number one, I'm pretty much out of room out there with that whole pegboard section that goes around, so I need to hang some of my other tools and things for quick access, much like what you were saying. And then I've been sort of thinking about those those plum axes, and they they need to come inside. Yeah, yeah. So are you going to hang stuff up, uh, display stuff in your shop, Chris? Oh, yeah, 100%. 
um, yeah, a lot of a lot of my pieces will be displayed in the shop. It's something I've always wanted to be able to do, but I couldn't. So I've had axe racks and stuff like that. And, you know, I have a I have a nice display cabinet I keep in the house, and that'll stay. That's where all the Norlands will stay and mm-hmm. some rare pieces. But you know, some of my other axes they're gonna get hung up top. Now the downside to that is obviously the dust. So. Yeah. So, dust is a huge fucking problem, and if guys, um, you know, it, it's just, it is such a freaking pain in the ass to kind of control. I need a dust collector. I strongly urge you to get a dust collector. I'd put, like, uh, like I was talking the other day, I'd put it up in that loft and, and pipe down some, some hard, hard pipes. Yeah. To where you need to go play on your grinder. The good thing about me is I don't do I don't do as much of that that kind of work that you do. And yeah, I, I have to keep my environment pretty clean anyway because of the leather. Um, but I do I do do this stuff, and what I uh what I plan on doing is the the two by seventy two is going to be on the one end of the shop, and then I'm going to hang my uh air filter on that end of the shop and then i thought about taking like a putting up some some sort of curtain or something to encapsulate that area yeah or like when i'm using the the grinder for wood and stuff and then yeah dust collector would definitely be nice so we'll see how that all looks but um what i do now is i just run it and run my air filter and then when I'm done I just I sweep everything up right away and blow stuff off and you know I'll, I'll continue to do that but I gotta look into dust collectors and stuff like that so Miller you're gonna be you're gonna be in a world of hurt if you get that KMG up and running and you're gonna be grinding shit in your shop in your yeah. garage yeah I had actually one in my old house um it wasn't a two by seventy two, but it was like a regular four inch sander grinder. And what I did is that I actually I can't remember where I went home depot or Lowe's and just bought a the biggest vent that I could buy, like an in house vent that you would run your AC or your heating through. Mm-hmm. And then I funneled that down and I connected that to my shop back. And then I I put that right underneath where the grinder was. And then any time that I ran that, I turned the shop back on, and that actually did a pretty good job of keeping the majority mm-hmm. of yeah. of the sawdust and stuff like that. It wasn't perfect, um, sure. but that that definitely helped. So that's sort of where I'm going to try and go is create a modified version of that with maybe something that's bigger than the shop back. Uh, the other thing is, as you guys have seen, I have that KMG is on that mobile island. So anytime I get the opportunity, that thing's getting rolled outside. Oh, that's right. I remember you saying that. And I was like, yeah, your, your neighbors are really going to like that. But like, that's all right. what the fuck is this guy doing? It's all right. It's all right. They can either like it or not like it. They don't really have a choice, but try and keep, keep the majority of that outside and then roll that thing back in. I mean, we'll see. Obviously, winter is going to wreak havoc with that, but, um, We'll keep tweaking it and see how it goes. But to your point, yeah, that's why some of that stuff is going to be coming inside because it's just not going to be able to be out there. But we'll, uh, 
we'll get something worked out and see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. It's always a challenge, man. Uh, I've I've moved stuff around in my shop, and whenever I first got going on this, I'd I'd uh, soak handles out there, just like rub them down or whatever. And then a couple days later, they're just dust is just stuck to the handle, stuck to the eye, stuck to the head. I mean, it just looks like shit. So all that beautiful hard work that I just finished is now covered in dust and crap and debris. It's not just sawdust. It's, you know, that fine uh, particulate dust from grinding or whatever. That shit just gets everywhere. Um, it's just you, you, you have to manage it, and it becomes overwhelming. So I get a lot of comments from, from guys saying, how do you keep your shop so clean? You know, I, how do you keep it so organized? And the simple answer is, if I don't, it will overrun itself. I mean, you just have to, you just have to clean up after every couple projects. Um, early on, after I completed one axe, I'd break the whole shop down and clean it all up. Um, now, not so much just because of the volume that I'm turning out. Um, so maybe, maybe once a week or so, I'll do a thorough clean. I'll, I've got a air compressor and everything. I got hard lines piped in. Um, and I'll just blow the whole shop out. Um, sweep everything up, get the chips out. Um, it's just a pain in the ass to do. And if I had a dust collector, an air filter, air filtration system, it would make my life way, way easier. So it's definitely on the list. Um, but just like everything else, um, I'm kind of always on the lookout for a deal. I can find a decent dust collector for a couple hundred bucks, but, uh, I'm looking for the deal of the century. Ideally American made. It's going to be really, really tough. And Killinger gives me shit for that all the time. Dude, just fucking break down. Go get a get one from Harbor Freight. And I understand the merits to it. It would it would control my dust a lot. I mean, instantly. But and I just have a hard time buying anything from Harbor Freight. I hate that fucking place. I, I don't. What do you? Let me let me let me rephrase. I love Harbor Freight for consumable items. Yeah, I was just gonna say. And things that are not mechanical. So this past Christmas, I got uh, a, uh, a gift card from for Harbor Freight, and it was awesome because that's what I used to build my my air system. I mean, that shit's not gonna like brass fittings, freaking hose reel. That I'm like that that shit. That's money well spent on that sort of stuff. I would never buy a piece of machinery or equipment or anything with a motor from Harbor Freight personally. Because I have, and they're terrible. I used to, whenever I first got into polishing steel, I learned on a six inch, um, Harbor Freight buffer, and I don't know how much they cost, let's just 50 bucks. And you can buy a one year, um, warranty with them, right? And the, the warranty's like six bucks. So you're into it for, let's just say $60, okay? I was, buffing so much steel and those buffers are so shitty that I was literally going through one a month. And here's the little, here's the little hook that maybe people don't know about Harbor Freight is if you buy their warranty, you're buying a one-time warranty for that particular piece of equipment. It's not like you're buying this unlimited warranty where 
well, my motor blew up, I'm going to go get another one. And then that one blew up, I'm going to get another one. Every time you do that, you have to buy another six or seven or whatever, how much ever it costs for that warranty. And I was going through one a month for about six months. And then I upgraded to their three-quarter horse buffer grinder combo, and that worked. It never blew up on me. Um, but it's still really, really shitty. I mean, you can, like, totally bog that thing down. It gets really hot. You can't even freaking touch it. Um and finally, once I was kind of getting the shop up and running, I found a really, really nice Baldor, uh 10-inch buffer. So, And I haven't had a problem with anything since. You're never going to have a problem with the Baldor. If you do, it's rebuildable. True. It's a horse-and-a-half, 10-inch buffer, dual spindle. It's It'll rip your freaking face off if yeah, you let Those things scare me. Dude, of all of the equipment that I have in my shop, that one has scared me the most. And here's the funny thing. It hasn't been with a wire wheel, hasn't been with anything. Uh, it was with a really big, I got a 12-inch loose Canton um, buffing, buffing wheel. And... You know, I'm sitting there buffing real nice and easy. I'm not putting a lot of pressure on there, and it caught the cutting edge, and it threw it against the back wall, and it came bouncing back to me. I've had one catch on a harder wheel, and it caught it, took a huge chunk out of the buffing wheel, sent it slamming against the back wall, and it hit the freaking cord of the buffer. Sparks flew up everywhere, <laughs> and right by my freaking feet. Scared the shit out of me. So... Buffers, be careful. <laughs> they will bite. Miller, what's the story about your your axe story in uh, Cancun? All right, so you um, this just proves what kind of homer I am whenever it comes to axes and hatchets and everything. So uh, we're down in Cancun last week, and you know, we're at this resort thing and getting all summed up, and my, my big albino ass has to either pretty much be in shade or underneath water or else it's uh you know like an like an egg in a frying pan so yeah it's like the middle of the afternoon i had i don't know had one or 12 mojitos or wherever i was at so i decided i'm gonna go for a walk around this place and you know go see and everyone there the staff and everybody's tremendously nice uh can't get enough you know they're asking you this or the other so I'm walking around and I'm out on the grounds and I see that there's these the workers there, these Mexican guys, and they have a uh, wheelbarrow there that says Trooper on it, okay, which is one of the groups that, you know, eventually through the cascade of the axe lines ended up, you know, buying some of the, uh, the tools and the lines and everything. So I go over and I start making small talk with these guys. They have all kinds of tools out. They got hedge clippers they got um, some drills and stuff like that so i started talking to him i said what kind of tools are you using and for whatever reason like the whole entire staff and everybody they all spoke english the ground crew there was only one guy that spoke some pretty limited english and no one else spoke english or they didn't want to talk to me either way it didn't really matter so i'm talking to this guy i'm like you know hey what are you using he like thinks i'm like fucking with him like uh, you know what's this guy doing so I'm like, I'm like, so I'm like, so what are you using? Like, you got Stanley? Like, what do we got? Black and Decker? I'm like, you have Milwaukee? He's, you know, looking at me and talking to me. And, and the one guy, 
lo and behold, he has a machete. <laughs> yeah. So I'm pointing at that. I'm looking. I'm like, hey, you know, who they who makes that? Fucking psycho, Miller. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, you know. <laughs> so, you know, meanwhile. What's up with this guy? Right. Meanwhile, I'm glowing red because I'm outside. Right. So my skin is just glowing red like a Christmas light. I got this, you know, beer in my hand and, uh. I'm like two foot taller than these guys. They're like, what is this guy doing? Like, come on now. So anyways, the guy has a machete and I'm pointing at it. I'm like, Hey, I'm like, who made that? Who made that? Well, here it was a, a trooper. It had like a plastic handle and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm like, do you guys have any older tools? Collins. And they're all the guy shaking his head. Well, here's there's this old timer in the back of the group. And he, he says Collins. And like, I almost lose my mind. I'm like, what did you say Collins? And the guy says Collins and he starts making like the chopping with his arm. And so I point at the machete and I said, Collins. And he goes, Collins. And he starts, you know, shaking his head. Yes. And so the, the guy that's limited English, I'm like, is he saying Collins? Is he calling this a Collins? So imagine this. I'm all excited. Yeah. I have some beers in me and stuff. I'm probably rambling like a schoolgirl. These guys all think I'm messing around with them. And I'm like, is he calling this a call? And the guy's like, yes, yes, Collins, Collins, which all reverts back to uh, with the history of the Collins company. And whenever I was up there earlier and in you know some of the research and, and reading that the Collins machetes in you know, Mexico and South America were so popular that they just simply called them Collins. That's what they were called. It didn't matter the type or the you know whatever they were that they had such a foothold on that industry down there that they just called them Collins. It wasn't a machete or a particular kind. So the fact then that this old timer was there called that a Collins while the other guy had it and basically confirmed that I was, I go running back to the pool to go talk to the girlfriend, like a little kid on crack. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like vacation is set. I'm like, we're, we're good. Like vacation is over. Like we need to just pack up and go. Um, back to the go back to the bathroom. Get right. a, a tub of butter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was a story. I come back. I, I tell Shannon, she's like, "You seriously are an idiot and a massive axe homer." She's like, "You're talking, you're talking to the ground guys about tools." I'm like, "Yeah, why not?" So, that was my story. I was like, I, I, "I'm going to tell this. No one's going to believe it." First of all, but um. Yeah, so that was it. The, the fact that I could get the old guy to say Collins and actually confirm that that's what the machete was basically made that vacation. That's cool. Even in Mexico, Cancun of all places, Mike Miller is on the fucking hunt for anything axe related. You are the biggest axe nerd in the world. Probably. <laughs> Probably. That's going to be the new title, just axe nerd. So. Move over, Axe King. It's the Axe Nerd. <laughs> but, yeah, so that was pretty cool, uh, just to be able to talk to those guys a little bit and not get beat up at the end. So that was my story. See how that all goes. Well, uh, I was just excited because it basically proved everything that the old-timers of the Collins factory had told me and then reading in a couple of the research books and in the catalogs and stuff like that. So to be able to put all that together. Yeah, yeah. And, and verify that. I thought that that was pretty cool. So yeah. What about you, Killer? Any cool stories? No. No. <laughs> oh no! Whoa, whoa, whoa. I forgot something. I got. I got. I totally forgot about this Appalachian axe meat. So uh, I got to share one quick story. Um, Sunday morning, 
um, Rooster and Brandon and I, we went over to um, Hoffman's shop and just it was it was amazing. Um, gave us a tour. He went through like every single machine, said what it did, all the ins and outs. And it was pretty, pretty freaking amazing, to say the least. So big thanks to Hoffman for the tour and the invite and everything. But here's the here's the part of the story that's funny. Um, so Rooster was switching things around in the cars because he had to stay there to go to council or whatever. And uh, <clears throat> so we're, we're just sitting there outside, blasting hot, and he's moving shit around. And Liam points in the trunk. He's like, is that a finish axe? And uh, Brandon pulls it out. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 this cool axe. And uh, I said, uh, that's done by... Matthew Justice of, and I was sleep deprived. My stomach was killing me. I was just in a bad freaking place, right? I was just not feeling well. Do what? AKA hangover. No. Uh, anyway, uh, I said, oh yeah, that's Matthew Justice. He's a, um, beaver, beaver creator woodcraft. And, and <laughs> said, did you say beaver queef? Woodcraft. <laughs> and I was like, uh, no, 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 no. Beaver Creek Woodcraft. Uh, his, his name's kind of hard to, uh, say. And Hoffman was like, yeah, he might want to think about changing that name. I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want someone saying Beaver Queef Woodcraft. <laughs> so, uh, Matthew Justice, if you are listening, you might want to reconsider your name. There's the story. You guys are idiots. We are. We're complete idiots. I know that. Um, so at the beginning, I said that I wanted to chit chat a little bit about the 127 yard sale. Um, so here, here's my quick take on it. And it kind of it kind of lines up with what I was talking about uh, these axe meets. Um, so whenever I, whenever you go to a yard sale, you don't expect full retail prices, right? You expect yard sale prices. And if you are in Kentucky, I said this last year on my Instagram feed. If you're in Kentucky, where is the most likely place that you will find a bluegrass axe, hatchet, hammer, anything bluegrass? Probably Kentucky. So the fact that these guys are putting ridiculous retail prices on bluegrass stuff just pisses me off to no end. And I have stopped trying to talk to them or convince them or anything because, Chris, you and I have talked about this before. Like, whenever you're trying to buy something and someone throws out a crazy number on something, there's no way that you can convince that person that the number that they said is way too high. I mean, you're just going to get into a losing argument because their mind is made up. You have the knowledge in the background to know what the value of that piece is, but you guys are so far apart. There's no talking about it. And it, I, I just, one of the last stops at this yard sale, this guy had, I don't know what it was, like $150 or something for a bluegrass double bit Michigan pattern, nothing special, little stamp, 
And uh, I, I looked at him and I was like, you know what? I'm starting to hate freaking bluegrass and king cutter because all you old guys think they're so freaking valuable. And I just walked away. And that guy probably thinks I'm a total asshole. And that's fine. I'm, I was I was just sick of it. And 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 this is what they said. Oh, that's a king cutter. That's a bluegrass. Getting real hard to find those around here. Yeah. <laughs> they made millions of them. Go back to episode number one. You will you will hear that they made millions, millions. They're out there. That's that's always our argument. What's well, rare? Is well, that's a king cutter. Those are valuable. Well, according to who? Um, I don't know where these guys get their info and because they're most of these guys that are at these sales, they're old. They so, pulled out their ass. They don't have any information. They just pulled out their ass. And they're hoping that you're dumb enough to take it. So yesterday I was really, really frustrated <laughs> because I passed on probably 40 axes. And um, I picked one up, this, this old, like, he was just full, like, higher than retail on every piece that he had. And I picked one of them up. And it was a BBB with a big round etch, beautiful axe. I don't know what it was. It was 175 or I think it was $275. And I picked it up, and there was a guy right next to me. I looked at it, and I go, are you fucking kidding me? This is ridiculous. And the guy next to me is like, yeah, I know. Down in Danville, I saw a guy selling some axes for four to $500. So what does this idiot do? Go, ah, four to $500. Those got to be some nice axes. I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to go try to find these axes. So for hours, I'm driving around blindly looking for some guy selling really expensive axes. And did I find them? Nope, I did not. Are you hitting sales today? Uh, probably not. I got to run up to town to do some stuff here in a few minutes, and I might hit some on the way home. Um. And here's also what I found out. It's a lot like fishing. So whenever I was fishing hardcore up in the Northwest, it's always, well, what's around the bend? What about this next fishing hole? What about the next fishing hole? And and looking for axes on these sales or any any kind of flea market or whatever, it's 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 very similar. You're always like, well, I wonder what the next one has. I wonder. Yeah. And it's. And if you get something like, oh, I got a, a Kelly Perfect jersey. Well, that was a good one, but maybe the next stop I can find something even better. Like yeah. it's just, it's very comparable to, to catching fish. Well, this fish is nice, but I bet there's a bigger one in that next fishing hole up there. It's very hard to quit too. It is. You're, you're, kind of, you're like, you reach a point where you're like, oh, I'm tired. I want to go home. I've had enough. This is the last stop. And then you're like, you're disappointed. Yeah. And you're like, well, one more, maybe the next one. I just then, want to go out on a bang, right? You just, yeah, you want to go out on a bang. And at some point, you just have to, like, enough's enough and, and pull yourself, pry yourself away from it. It sucks because, you know, once you're in that hunting mode, and I'll do it up here. I, I haven't done it in a while, but, you know, I'll I'll hit my chain of antique stores, you know, like, that's just what we're doing that day or weekend or whatever. And you're all like, how much farther should I drive? You know, 
oh, it's it's getting late. Should I even waste my time? And you know, you end up walking into an antique store five minutes before they close, and you're running through the place trying to yeah. <laughs> there's anything there. Yeah. The hunt's the best part. The hunt's the best part. Well, and I kept telling myself yesterday, like this is one time a year, right? This is the the mega sale of the season. So just suck it up. Um, it was freaking hot. The air conditioner in my car is going out. So um, I was just this totally nasty, sweaty, dirty, freaking axe mode. Uh, and I was just like, I, I just got to go to the next one. One more, one more, because after today, you know, it's got to wait a year for it. So, and I only found, I only bought four pieces yesterday. So in terms of volume, yeah, it's disappointing. Um, I could have bought tons and tons more, but they were just too daggone expensive. And I like like I was saying, man, I don't know if these old timers know that axes are hot. Well, I, I know they do because I would I would walk up to some guy and say, hey, you got any axes? I did, but I sold six or eight of them. Some guy from Alabama. From Alabama came up and got them. What? Are you fucking kidding me? You know who's educating these guys is the consumers. I yeah. Know that because I have a very similar situation here in Ohio with the Colonial Homestead. It's owned by an Amish guy. He has no he has no connection to the internet. He doesn't know what what's going on or none of that stuff. And yet his prices on his axes are very. On par, if not a little bit higher than retail, and all of his all of his input comes from customers, comes from you know like he knows New Orleans are popular. Well, he knows they're popular because people are coming in there saying, "Hey, you got any New Orleans? You got any New Orleans?" You know. So, same thing with those old timers. They're, they're being educated by. Well, of course, if it's just a one-time sale, then no, you can't say that. But a lot of these people, that's what they do. I mean, they do, they do yard sales and flea markets and, and stuff like that. That's, that's their gig. So they're being educated by the consumer. So, well, so collectors, keep your damn mouth shut. <laughs> Everybody needs to collectively act like everything's not worth anything. Yeah, really. Good luck with that, huh? Yeah. So, I don't know, Roy. I go away for a week, man. I come back, and you're all price sensitive now. I don't know if I can do this again, so I'm going to have to plan accordingly. Make sure that you're, you're going to be in the right here. But, no, those are whenever you go to events like that. Now, that 127, I know of that. I've never been there or anything. But, and I've seen the same thing, much to Kellinger's uh, point. It's it's a new ball game now with the industry and the community, there are a lot more people in there, uh, obviously. And I know, I, you know, I've talked about it before. I know with Chris and a couple other guys is you'll, especially on social media, you'll see the posts. Hey, I'm at this flea market. Hey, I'm at an antique store. Hey, I'm wherever, you know, I have this head. What is this worth? Yeah. And you'll see, a, you'll see a million of those out there. Right. And I know, you know, we've talked about it. It's, it's like, what are you doing? Right. Cause these guys are, Basically, you know, I'm sure some of them are, they want to make sure that they get the best deal that they can, which anybody would want to do that. But then there's also the guys that are going to take that and they want to make sure that they can flip it accordingly. 
So it's a it's a different ballgame, and you got to watch. You got to make sure that you know what you're doing. And you know we are sort of paying the price literally for the the overall uh, just the increased popularity of actually. The increased popularity of the whole entire axing, which, you know, hey, I'm excited about. I, you know, I love it. So we'll, uh, we'll see where it goes. It's, I don't think it's going to go down. Um, I mean, I'm hoping it doesn't go down here anytime soon. But, we'll see how it goes, but it's, it's definitely interesting. The, the whole dynamic of the economy behind the whole axe, uh, genre has definitely changed. It has, and kind of long-term, I wonder how long it's sustainable. Um, and also, for me, I'm buying uh, I'm buying two types of heads. I'm buying for my inventory for five years from now, ten years from now, or whatever. And I'm also buying for my personal collection. Albeit that, that number is a lot smaller, but... I mean, if I go to one place and I spend three dollars on on a head that's banged up or whatever, then right down the road, guy has the same exact head and he wants thirty dollars for it. Like, how is there such a wide discrepancy between the two? Like, I I don't understand it. Is one guy smarter than the other? Is the other one guy just trying to screw over someone else or? Or, or did he pay more for it and he's just trying to pass on the cost? I mean, I, there are so many factors at play here, and it's really, really frustrating at the end of the day. Like, we all know um, the the prices are so all over the board. There's no consistency. Um, so it's just a matter of what you're willing to pay for it right then and there. And if you want it, buy it. It doesn't matter what it's worth. I think that that's the point, you know, so you get these guys that, you know, again, guy A sells it for five bucks, the other guy sells it for 50. Usually what you have in that is what did each one of those guys pay for it, right? So obviously if guy number two is going to sell it for 50, he's into it for way more. And then number two, is there any kind of emotional connection right. with that particular piece and that guy trying to sell that? That's usually the two main factors that you'll get into where, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this price is so jacked up or then you get factor number three where you guys have sort of talked about it earlier. Hey, this is a bell nap. Hey, this is a king cutter. Hey, this is a bingham. Say hey, this is whatever. It's just worth more to that particular person. And you know, sometimes those are the factors that, that you got to overcome and, and, uh, and deal with those guys, but it's all part of the hunt and it's what makes it great. Well, I think on those particular brands, um, the crossover value is much higher because if you're collecting king cutter, you can collect anything under the sun, shears, post hole diggers, axes, knives, like, and it's not just king cutter, bluegrass, same way, van camp, the same way. So Winchester, God, I stopped buying Winchester. I used to have a bunch of them, but the prices have just gone crazy because People love anything Winchester, and just because Winchester is stamped on an axe, they think it's worth a million freaking dollars. Well, you know what? Go ahead, take it. I don't. I don't even freaking want it. I don't even want to be in the Winchester ballgame anymore. I'm done with it. I'm, seriously, I'm done. Unless I find it for twenty bucks. <laughs> so what you're saying is Winchester's dead. <laughs> Winchester's dead. 
all of a sudden Roy has single-handedly killed off like six axe lines today because now Winchester's dead, King Cutter's dead, Bluegrass. Well, I don't know if he's going to kill Bluegrass. I think that still holds a special spot for him. Van Camp, dead. Next thing you know, man, dead. <laughs> Kelly, dead. But, no, I mean, we'll see how it goes. It, it's definitely – and it, it's been changing. Uh, I know in the time that I've been buying axes, uh, a lot of change. I mean, you could get a paper label head, what I would consider now pretty decent, back 10 years ago, 12 years ago, now is astronomical because guys know the Internet's out there. Tom Lamont's out there. Um, you know, there's idiots like me posting pictures of all these paper labels. And, you know, so we'll, uh, we'll see. I mean, I, it, it, it's sort of exciting to me because that is the whole entire history piece of it. And to me, it's sort of getting its due recognition now um, where it, there was just like that dead zone there between like the late 70s, 80s, 90s. In the early 2000s, where there no, was nothing, so no shit about axes, right? Nobody did until Survivor Man came along, and all of a sudden bushcraft was cool, and then everything just sort of spiraled out of control from there. You can actually see the timeline; the timeline matches up perfectly. Thanks, so, Stroud. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how, where it all goes and how it all uh, how it all takes off. If it continues to do so, maybe it will bottom out one day, but I don't think it will. All right, that's a good place to end. I got to get going. All right, gentlemen, good podcast. We will uh, do it all here again in a few days, and uh, I'll get this up and out there today for the masses. And uh, there, so thank you guys. Thanks everyone for listening to us ramble. And uh, big thanks to the Mexican crew that Mike Miller (laughs) scared the shit out of. Viva la Mexico. <laughs> See you, suckers.